So let's talk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it seems that what strikes me in, in your talk is that you're obliged to shut him up in the sense that what he's doing is giving uh, giving life to concepts and opinions and views, which is which are the very things that get in the way of what you're talking about. Well, <clears throat> Yes and no. I mean, in that, uh, you know, in the context of Columbia University, where I'm not, in a, you know, here, here we're a practice center. So here we all, I think, in, in coming together here, our, our, our feeling is we're here, it's all about practice. You're not here to learn. I mean, I suppose an academic could come here and give a learned speech, a learned, learned you know, day of teaching about an academic subject, which might be of interest too. But here, the context is clear. There, it was a little ambiguous. So that, uh, I think, and I tried to give some, this was my problem, why he got mad at me, because I tried to give some, as I did in the beginning of my earlier talk, give some historical background. Uh, And it could be that that was what a lot of the people were there interested in uh, finding out about. So, but yeah, in the end, (coughs) in the end, he was basically abusing the audience, and so I had to do my best to to stop him. And fortunately, I was saved by my son. I don't know if, if he had not been there. I don't know if I would have been able to. What would have What would have happened? You know exactly. But but yeah, he was he was being clearly what was moving him was a passion and an anger. It was obvious. You know, that everybody could see that he was angry about something he had a passion for something and he wanted to get a point across and he was very upset with some other view and uh, he was holding the audience host- hostage to his emotion so but that wasn't right yeah. yeah do you recall what your son said well not exactly but I remember that he was basically um I, in stepping in and trying to stop the guy from talking, I automatically, there was no way that I wasn't creating a, two positions that were now at odds with one another, right? And that was what was happening. And uh, my son managed to, basically what he, his message was more or less, well, now I understand what you're saying over here, blah, 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 and that makes sense. And, and he's saying this over here, blah, blah, that makes sense. And so this is... Uh, so maybe we can go beyond this impasse and, and appreciate each view and, you know, calm down, more or less, is what he said. And, and he, he did have the effect of calming down this guy. I think I, there was no way, no matter what I said or did, that I was going to calm down this guy because of my position in that moment. I was the person, I was the target of his... So no matter, and I was quite nice about it. I mean, I didn't in the beginning. I listened to him, and I didn't. So that that didn't matter. I was the target, and so everything that came out of my mouth was the target speaking. So it took someone else to yeah, change that. Time, time out too for both. Yeah, right. That's right. That, that right. Just even that. Just physically not being the one speaking because we were going back and forth there. Right. Not being the one speaking for a time was also helpful. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was great. I was really impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I listened to someone speak recently about her experience of leaving a monastic setting and she went to a school. Started studying this literature, you mean? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and it took me a long time to have any um, intellectual understanding that before you have the conceptualization, there's an awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how do you how do you cultivate that? How how does one when you spend your whole life in the world of ideas? How do you cultivate Well, this is, uh, you know, an important point. I, I was trying to say in my talk that there is an immediate, immediate experience of making language. Mm-hmm. That in itself is an immediate experience. It's not as if sometimes this uh, literature tends to imply in a way that language is less important or less accurate or less true. And this is one of the contributions of Dogen, particularly, to Zen thought, is Dogen points out that language itself is an immediate experience and is not to be denigrated. When you understand that language is its own kind of immediate experience, and we think of language as describing other experience, we think language is telling us about the other experience, but it's not. Language is its own experience. So, in other words, you can give yourself to language. You don't have to think about stepping back from language while you're in the middle of language to find some immediate experience which is not language. You just give yourself to language when language is the experience at hand. And you do it in such a way as understanding, this is language. I am now using thought in language as such. So, in a way, it's not that different from the way you would think and speak otherwise. It's just that there's a level of peacefulness to it because you're not so agitated about the, the you know, the, uh, you know, the, the truth of my idea. You're realizing I'm singing my song. I'm participating in a situation in which these words, these thoughts are necessary and have a function. I don't have to be so identified with an intent on these thoughts or feel that 
these these words and thoughts are my whole are the only kind of experience possible. So I think it's just it's it's just it's not something that you do. It's just a kind of a training and a view that you develop over time. And because I work in language all the time, of course, what am I doing now? I'm talking to you, right? In language, and we're talking about ideas and concepts. Uh, and uh, all religious truth is conveyed, you know, with the aid of language and concepts. But when you, it's, the difference is knowing that and using language with that knowledge <coughs> rather than getting stuck on language as a descriptor of something else. I don't know if that makes sense, but... Mm-hmm. <coughs> yes? It's a great, it's a great, yeah, it's a great thing to bring up. I, I, I was thinking about that just the other day. That it's possible that throughout religious history, most of the people who have engaged in chanting and liturgy have been ch- doing chanting and liturgy in a language that they don't understand. <laughs> yeah, Hebrew or Latin or. Yeah. Yeah, and in Buddhism, people think, well, why don't you translate these things? Because we want to, well, how could we, what, that's stupid that we should be chanting this stuff that we don't understand. But actually, it might be an advantage, you know, that you don't understand it. Maybe we're always talking in Latin, you know, we just don't know it. <coughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I'm a great believer in finding what works. Now, I know that the koans are relevant to today's experience. People of today, many people of today, like Michael, practice the koans and find them relevant and useful to their living. But if somebody comes to me and says, uh, you know, this is my practice, what I'm doing, and I say, well, meditate on this koan, and and they do it, and they come back and they say, this means nothing to me. This is irrelevant. It's not touching what I need. I, you know, then forget about it. And I think that uh, it does, koan study does require a kind of fairly thorough kind of orientation to the whole lingo, you know. And if somebody, and most people who do koan study really like that lingo. They have, they, they're drawn to it and they want to engage in this orientation to the lingo and to the way it works in the system and they find it you know they do find it relevant and beneficial but uh, I think even in, even if you become a Zen student there are plenty of Zen students who don't find that whole language system beneficial and they practice Zen quite successfully uh, without necessarily getting all wrapped up in that so 
So what's relevant and what these koans are supposed to be pointing to is not the sayings and doings of some old guys in China, but your own life. And if you can make use of them to point to your own life, they're useful. If that doesn't work out for you, then, then forget about it, you know, and it's something you need to go another way. So, mm-hmm. yes? Just a comment. It seems to me uh, what a lot of modern art and modern architecture and even modern poetry do is, again, uh, not so much give you a particular image to see, but sort of see the thing by itself. And yes. Or really put you in the immediacy of experience. Yes. Um, I always be suspect about the theories that went behind the modern art. That the immediacy of experience I found very interesting. Yeah. And that seems to me a wonderful tool in the modern world for yes. us. Yes. so far in our heads to be able to come. That's right. Yes, absolutely right. And, and uh, this is one of the things about, I was talking earlier about those famous lectures in New York City that D.T. Suzuki gave in the 50s. Many people who attended those lectures were artists. And uh, a lot of the artists, the New York artists, who, who, whose whole thrust of their work in painting was, we don't want to make pictures of anything. We don't want to point to anything. We just want to point to paint. We want, to, we want our, the viewer to have an immediacy of the experience on the canvas, not be thinking about what does this tell us about the way Parisian women dressed, you know, 100 years ago, but rather what is the immediacy of this experience. So there is that. And, and also, uh, also in poetry, Interestingly, in my, you know, I've, I've been uh, engaged in poetry for a long time, and um, when I first moved uh, to California, one of my purposes was to study Zen, but I was also writing. And <clears throat> my poetry colleagues and I, together, I was a, actually quite a peripheral part of it, but many of them in the center of it were creating uh, a poetry kind of a postmodern poetry based on exactly this principle, which is why my experience as a Zen student was very relevant and part of that same group. It was called language poetry, and it was all about, in the same way that you know, po- uh, the uh, New York uh, painters were painting about paint to give you an immediate experience, these poets were uh, writing poems about language not language as a subject, but language as a demonstration. And so uh, I found that you know, very relevant and very much. So the language brings you back to the experience of language rather than to thoughts, ideas, images. Paint that brings you back to the experience of paint, the experience of seeing. So yeah, I think this thought, which is basic Zen uh, uh, attitude or approach, is actually one of the most important, Like just like you say, in our postmodern and modern culture, one of the crucial ideas that drives many of the cultural products uh, of the last half century is, is just this point. And I think it's why Zen, as a, as a thought, you know, as a philosophy, is so relevant, far beyond its small numbers of people, really, who have ever practiced Zen in the West, relative to the number of people there are. There's a pretty small number of people. Yes. I, I feel like if I, I don't argue with you a little bit. That's right. You'll be disappointing us all, right? That's right. So you're really, you're, it's really true, yeah. So if, if someone had said to me that, oh, well, my name's Colin. Yeah. If 
someone had said to me, I'm finding this koan meaningless, I might interrogate them a little further. Like, um, are you finding that you're asking for life to have, are you finding yourself wondering what is the meaning of life, perhaps? Do you, do you ask yourself that question? Are you finding uh, yourself uh, wondering um, you know, about the meaninglessness of some of the experiences that you've had in life. Is it possible that that Cohen is merely reflecting back some other stuff that you have about meaninglessness? And you know, and if I found that the person you know couldn't relate to what I was saying, I said, you know, well, that's cool. Mm-hmm. But maybe if it resonated with them that they saw Cohen doesn't mean anything to me. Well, maybe that has to do something with their preconceived ideas mm-hmm. about there being some <coughs> meaning in life that they are going to discover mm-hmm. and that they might end up very disappointed that uh, no one had arranged, um, you know, like a novelist comes up with a nice neat climax for a book, no one has arranged there to be a grand meaning of what you're supposed to find meaning in. Mm-hmm. Well, if they resonated with them, they might find that <coughs> some people find that if you stick with it, mm-hmm. that the problems you come up with initially, it's those problems themselves. In this case, I don't find that it means anything. Maybe that has something to do with the other issues in their life. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a comment um, about words. I was thinking about that. Mm-hmm. That um, thinking of, I'm here because I, I like the spiritual question, and I think that finding the question like that points to your life or connecting mm-hmm. there is really important. And I'm really enjoying the, the lecture and the discussion about it. But finding those key words is really important at first. Mm-hmm. You know, like the koan. What's the frame that can then take you beyond? Mm-hmm. Words. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the words become irrelevant because it's the experience in which they lead you to. Mm-hmm. So, just a comment about right. critical, absolutely essential, sort of at one point, and then it's completely irrelevant as you move. Right. Forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because you, you could say that uh, koan practice is really the practice just of questioning. It's a practice of inquiry, of questioning. And uh, in relation to what we've been saying here, what Michael's been saying, what you were bringing up, that one has to find a question that works. And sometimes the question that works is not necessarily a question that you can understand or appreciate, but it just somehow intrigues you or it kind of gets you going and gives you what you need. So, But this is really a practice of questioning, and I think that that's a wonderful... That mode of religious uh, process as a process of questioning is uh, one mode of religious, in, you know, spiritual endeavor, which I think is a powerful one and, and a beautiful one. I think not all spiritual traditions include it or emphasize it a lot, but I think it is, uh, for many people, a key, for me, for sure, a key uh, pathway of spiritual development and, act- and act- activity. Yeah, finding the right question. And then, yeah, you end up discarding the question. I think when people work with Genjo Cohen in the way that I was speaking about it before, this is more exactly what happens. 
they're to the, the question just fades away. It's discarded. Even if there's no big aha moment, the feeling is, I've exhausted that question. It's no longer important. Now there's another question. And, and there may not be, ah, I got this. I can now tell you the answer to this question. No, no, it's just that this is not a question for me anymore. What's the answer? Who cares? This is not a question for me anymore. There's whatever, whatever in my heart was unsettled and crystallized around that question is now settled. So I have another question. Yeah. And it's endless. But that orientation is really important. Yeah. That, yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, for me, it's... <coughs> Yeah, no, that's true, and I, and I think that, yeah, and certainly, you know, the teachings are, when you said initially, it's easy to see the beauty of the uh, oak tree in the garden, I, I immediately thought of Master Yunman's, you know, what is Buddha, shit stick, you know, <laughs> so, but that wasn't what you were talking about, you were talking about uh, thoughts and feelings, and just, you know, the human, human world, uh, rather than the natural world, yes, and I think that, um, the fact that there is no fundamental difference in the beauty of an oak tree and the beauty of one's own sorrow or anguish is one of the points also which is made over and over again. In fact, it's one of the points of this koan. I'm not teaching you about something outside. I'm not teaching you about the beauty of an oak tree. This is not about an oak tree. This is about the nature of mind. So, uh, I think understanding that and continuing to practice, you would eventually, we hope, cultivate the same sense about what arises within you as what you would see outside, something beautiful. Yeah. And then to see that same profundity and beauty even in suffering. This would be even, even yeah, it would be nice and, and, and also difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes me think of the. I think it's also a Zen tradition of uh, writing a death poem mm-hmm. when you're approaching your death, mm-hmm. just moments before your death. Mm-hmm. Not have thought of anything ahead of time, but just yeah, yeah. in that in that context, mm-hmm. to try to put some words mm-hmm. on your experience. Uh, it, it just um, it's hopeless, but <laughs> also it's. Yeah, yeah. There's some years ago, someone published a volume of translations of death poems by Zen teachers. Yeah. yeah. Shall we break for lunch? Are we ready for that? Uh, well, let's see. It's uh, almost a quarter to one or so.
If we take an hour and a half, that's what does that mean? Two quarter to one to quarter to two, isn't it? Two fifteen. Come back at two fifteen, and we'll and we'll start with uh, another half hour of sitting and koan practice. Thank you very much.